welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast, Jeff. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jeff. Once again, uh, we have interesting weather in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> we do. We've been talking about the weather a lot on this podcast. We have. A sign of global warming, I think, because we seem to always be in some kind of extreme weather event. Yeah, we have some serious extreme weather going on here in Portland. Something like five inches of rain in the last three days. Yeah, uh, there for a while I was posting on pay- Facebook every day. It was We were having the same number of inches as the days of the month for yeah. a while. Well, that's, that was, that's always been a misconception. Well, perhaps no longer a misconception about the Pacific Northwest, particularly Portland, which is, yes, in the winter, Portland is very wet and very gray, but actually didn't, doesn't rain that much in the past uh, in, in terms of volume. No, it's like living in a cloud. It's like living in a cloud. It's always sort of a misty, mizzen, uh, a drizzle or uh, mizzen rain, and um, yeah, not so not so much anymore. No, nope. we we we, do, we tend to be in monsoon now. Yeah, uh, it's pouring down. Well, uh, it's better than the drought, I guess. That's true. That's true. Uh, and it, by the way, it's starting to snow in the mountains. Yes, and I've been snow always. So finally, we'll get our snowpack back. Yeah, which is, let's hope which they're getting is, it down in California too. Which is big fun. Uh, Got to head up there soon with the cross country skis. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the brewing process. Uh, we're going to talk about how the brewing process creates the flavors uh, that you taste in beer. Uh, and of course, with me, uh, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of the Beer Bible from Workman Publishing. Uh, out now, get your uh, get all of your friends, family, uh, distant relations copies for uh, the holidays. Uh, you can also pair that with Cider Made Simple, another of Jeff's uh, tomes from Chronicle Publishing. Um, and you can find him blogging at uh, Beervana and at All About Beer. All true. You are Patrick Emerson, a professor at uh, and researcher at Portland State. Uh, Portland State. Why do I That's say? the second time you've done I that. I know. You're at Oregon State, uh, finishing up your... your uh, your semester, is that right? Uh, yes, uh, just finishing up our uh, fall term. Um, so uh, good luck to all the Oregon State undergrads, graduate students on their finals. Right, and I understand the Beavers didn't have such a hot year this year in the old gridiron. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> the Beavers are are are, uh, are regressing to the mean, I guess, yeah. uh, of their historical performance, which. <laughs> <laughs> Their mean performance is quite bad. The last decade was not so bad. But that's okay because there's basketball, and uh-huh. there's signs of life in men's basketball, and their women's team uh, kicks butt. So. All right. Go, go Beavers. Go Beavers. Uh, okay. So first, the news. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about what's been going on. Uh, it seems like uh, there's a fair amount happening in the, in the beer world. Um, one of the f- most interesting things that we're, that everybody's watching, not just in the United States, is this uh, Anheuser-Busch takeover of SAB Miller mm-hmm. and how that's progressing. And um, it's getting a little bit of pushback here in the United States from uh, the Congress. There are senators who are uh, lining up against it and the Brewers Association that represent the craft brewers, they're lining up against it. Yep. And ABI didn't seem to help themselves uh, by announcing that they would like to start restricting uh, distributorships to only Anheuser-Busch products and having them push in uh, other brands off off the uh, the roles of those distributorships that they have around the country. Yeah, and that's a big deal uh, in terms of retail beer because first, uh, shelf space can be hard to find and hard to get into uh, retail outlets, and distributors are those that have the relationships with retail outlets. Um, and so uh, access uh, to markets is obviously huge if you're a, a, a small and up-and-coming uh, brewery. So um, this is potentially uh, 
a big deal. What's interesting to me is sitting here in Portland, Oregon, I look around and there are four or five uh, sort of smaller, more independent distributors around and, and um, many that, that focus on craft beer. Uh, and I wonder how much that's uh, typical. And I ex expect that you'll tell me that's not uh, terribly typical. To my understanding, it's not not uh, typical. I think maybe some other cities have it, but um, I know that there are some cities that don't have great distribution, and it is harder. Yeah. So I guess the question is, what's the what's the causal relationship? Are, are these distributors here uh, because of the growth in craft beer in the area, or is the growth of craft beer in the area due to these distributors? I I I, I tend to believe the former. In which case, that makes me less nervous about uh, Anheuser Busch's moves now. Their distribution distribution arm is, is humongous and controls a, a, a big portion of the market in many parts of the U.S. But um, as craft beer becomes more and more popular, retailers want it. Retailers want to sell it because it sells, and uh, they're going to be looking for it, and that gives opportunity potentially for new distributors to uh, to arise. That's right, and I think in the, uh, the AB example, what we're seeing are the contours of their strategy emerging because they've been acquiring all these local craft breweries. Right. So now they're going to be able to offer portfolios of uh, mass market lager and craft lagers in the same distributor. They'll all be in the ABI family. That's right. So they can go to retailers and, and offer a whole portfolio. Those distributors are now protected from the retailers who say, we don't want Bud Light. We want, you know, craft beer. Now they can offer them a craft beer. Mm -hmm. Yep. Interesting. So that's something to watch. What else we got? Uh, we mentioned last pod about the, speaking of distributors, local distributors, general distrib distributors were facing a strike uh, by their workforce, which was unionized in the Teams, in, in the Teamsters. Um, and that strike, in fact, uh, ended when the Teamsters rank and file voted to end the strike without uh, getting any concessions from general distributors. Yeah, weird case. I don't know that we can draw any conclusions from this. It just seems yeah, I don't like know nearly enough to really, to really comment intelligently, but since we mentioned it before, I wanted to sort of close the loop. So, it, yeah. uh, so I guess the, the, uh, the rank and file didn't feel like they had the time of leverage that they hoped or perhaps working conditions that were um, as uh, different from other distributors as they thought. Clearly their, their case was not as strong as they thought it was, but yeah. we don't know too much more on that one. Yeah. Okay. What's next? Well, uh, interesting item in the world of news, uh, Stone Brewing Company, the famous producer of uh, Stone IPA and Arrogant Bastard, has uh, announced a couple of years ago that they were opening a brewery in Berlin, uh, and they have done that. And on Monday, they released the first uh, Stone beers in Berlin, uh, Stone IPA and Arrogant Bastard. So we're now having a fresh American beer sold in the land of uh, Reinheitsgebot, which is an interesting development. Yeah, do they have to? Do they have to change their recipe? Do you think, or uh, they're not changing the recipe? Definitely, uh, they're leaving it the same. I'm, th this 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 law Reinheitsgebot that we all know about actually has different rules for ales and lagers, and it's we've all heard about that we've all heard about. I don't know true. much about it at all. Except well, that's uh, you'll you'll know much more. Uh, I think next year, when we have the 500th anniversary of Reinheitsgebot, uh -huh. there's going to be a million articles. I actually just completed one for All About Beer that will come out later this year. But we, we uh, don't need to go too deeply into that. I think it's just interesting that um, Stone is making a gamble that American craft beer is, is what people are going to want in the mainland, and they're going to try to sell it there. So that'll be an interesting... At, y Germany's uh, market is quite insular, and mm -hmm. they have not been too receptive to imports. So we'll see what happens. So planting the flag. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. We'll have to we'll have to keep track. 
Uh, and lastly, the Brewers Association came out once uh, with their uh, annual numbers again. And they announced that there are more breweries now in the U.S. than ever before in the history of our great country. Uh, 4,144, although since two open each day in the United States, it's probably quite a bit more than that now. That's right. Uh, the which, ticking along. Which just goes to show, and this is yet again evidence of why I'm pretty sanguine about whether there's a craft beer bubble. Uh, there appears to be um, an enormous expansion in demand for craft beer, which is what I always talk about when people focus on the supply. Uh, in fact, I was just interviewed for a, an article in uh, Los Angeles Magazine on this topic, um, although it, uh, it comes out looking like I, I'm a little bit of a skeptic, but I'm not. Uh, I, I'm actually pretty, pretty gung-ho on craft beer. So, yep. uh, Okay, so now let's turn to uh, the topic of the pod today. Yeah, let's do it. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about so everybody out there in in Podland, uh, hang with us because I think it's going to be an interesting topic, even if it didn't sound scintillating at the top. <laughs> um, the when you drink a, a bottle of beer or go, go to a pub and have a pint of beer, uh, there are a ton of flavors that come out, mm -hmm. and they come from partly they come from ingredients and partly they come from process. And one thing I learned in my book tour as I was traveling around the country is that people's understanding of which flavors line up with which process is not totally clear. And mm -hmm. it's actually, the brewing process is, is pretty simple to understand. And mm -hmm. it seemed like we could, if we walked through it and tasted some beers as we went, we could describe in very, very uh, simple terms uh, what's happening and how that affects the beer and, and what kind of flavors it produces. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, when you mentioned this topic to me, I wasn't, I wasn't so sure at the, begin the beginning, and part of that's just because uh, I've been uh, attempting to brew beer, or uh, brewing beer, attempting to brew good beer. Um, attempting with me. <laughs> yeah, we, we, in fact, <laughs> we, we first started in 1994 brewing beer. That's right. Um, and uh, you've always said, and I agree completely, that if you really want to understand um, the beer you taste, uh, uh, attempting to brew it or brewing um, beer yourself is, is the best education. Um, and so I sort of always kind of assume people have this basic knowledge, but, uh, but that's not true at all. Um, there's relatively few of the craft beer drinkers are out there actively brewing. So um, that's what we're trying to do today is uh, connect the dots between how beer is made and um, how you taste the beer when it reaches your lips. Yes. Okay. So uh, how do you want to start this, Jeff? You are our guide. Okay, well, let's start with uh, the malting, which I, we have to, before we get to the brew house, we have to start with the, the ingredients. Okay. Um, hops, everybody knows, they grow, uh, they are harvested, the cones are collected, not too much there. The malt is actually an interesting thing. We did, you don't make beer with uh, grain, you make it with malt. Mm -hmm. So this malting process is the first stage of the brewing process. Mm -hmm. And um, it was actually one of the first great discoveries that humans made that allowed us to learn how to brew decent beer. Yeah. When you when you uh, when when you have a when you harvest grain, it's a little hard seed. It's really a seed. Right. And if you bite into a you know wheat that just comes off the the grain, the the shaft of wheat uh, mm -hmm. is hard. So what brewers do to prepare it is they start to germinate that little seed, which wakes it up, and it begins to uh, the the enzymes inside activate, and it begins to produce carbohydrates, which will feed the seed as it grows. Right, and if you continued that process, it would end up sprouting. It, and, it, and in fact, when they do it, they let the first little tip of the sprout come out, which is called chitting. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's family friendly with a CH. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, that's right. We ticked that box on iTunes, so we got to make sure. That's right. Uh, that is the process of, um, of, of malting. Then you do uh, kilning, which stops the process. You, you heat it up, and um, it will 
either lightly toast it, uh, mm -hmm. which was makes pale malt, or you can just like coffee, deep roast it. Continue to roast it and yeah. make it darker and darker. Right. So that's the basic building block for uh, beer malt. Malted barley is uh, you can malt you can uh, malt wheat as well. Malted barley and wheat are the two most common grains. So that's what you start out with when you start brewing your batch of beer. You get your malt, you get a sack of malt, and you go to town. Uh, since we're talking about flavors, I don't want to get too off uh, track right at the beginning, but just because we're going to be talking about flavors, uh, when there are uh, things like chocolate malts, um, are those uh, done any differently, or it just happens to be that they malt it in a way that brings out that particular flavor from the grain? That's it. It's really good. We we uh, we should touch on that. There there is a uh, we don't want to get too technical in all this description, but people might find this interesting. Um, the fermentable sugars are preserved when the when the uh, malt is not malt, malted too darkly. Once you start malting it too darkly, you uh, break down those sugars and they are no longer available to be, for the yeast to turn into alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, so almost every beer that's made is made, I should say, that's not true, every beer that's made is made with a large majority of pale malts. Right. Those pref those give you the, the uh, fermentability. Right. They're kind of the, the, the sugar. But then there's other things called specialty malts, and you'll see sometimes they'll even put these on bottles. It'll be like chocolate malt, you mentioned Munich, Vienna, mm -hmm. uh, caramel malts, right. roasted malts. These are all just prepared differently. Um, the the they're they're just kilned more or less. There's one category that's that's interesting and distinctive, and these are the caramel malts. Mm -hmm. uh, the caramel malts are uh, mo most of the grain when it goes through the kiln or the roasting, it's dried first, so that when it's when it's roast when it's uh, kilned. Mm -hmm. It just toasts up. Right. Caramel malts are actually roasted or kilned when they're still wet. Mm. And what happens is those sugars inside the grain caramelize. They crack mm. and like become crumbly. So sometimes it's called crystal malt, sometimes it's called caramel malt. It's the same thing. But these malts create particular flavors uh, in the beer, the caramely, obviously, but also uh, they can give it um, like dark fruit flavors, mm -hmm. depending on how dark they are. And then uh, because of the preparation, they don't contribute any fermentable sugars, so they'll right. add body. So if you're putting a caramel malt in a beer, you're, you're just going to get more body. So you'll find caramel malts in uh, American IPAs and English styles. You will not find it in uh, Pilsners and Saisons, for example. Right. So right. that's a good question. Right. And so uh, not to be too obvious about it, but, um, uh, and we'll talk about the, um, the process, uh, but the yeast that produces the alcohol feeds on the certain sugars in the beer, right? Um, but not all, right. right? Let's use that as a segue. Okay. Why is that? Well, it's because uh, maltose is um, a complex sugar, and the process that happens next is is what's called mashing, and that process is designed to break down the maltose into uh, sugars, sim more simple sugars that the yeast can eat. So the mash, if you go to a brewery, the first thing you'll see is a is a vessel where they put the grain and create a hop, like a kind of a, a malt tea. They put warm water in there and soak it, and it will just like tea. It will, uh, so you know, or or kind of looks like uh, oatmeal or breakfast cereal. Right. So you have a bunch of malted grain, and let's just uh, do the intermediate step here. So you have malted grain, which comes from the um, the malter, um, still in uh, whole grain form. But malted, so right. the the kilning process has happened. It comes to typically the brewer as a whole grain, and then in order to uh, um, facilitate the process of 
making of getting extracting the sugars from the grain using hot using a hot water bath essentially right they crack the grain yep right you are it's uh, known as milling known as milling uh and so you can uh i presume you can buy milled grain as well but most uh breweries will have a miller will mill their own grain because yep. you can control other aspects of the brewing process by how finely you mill it right uh and then you dump all of that milled grain into a big vessel and pour hot water and essentially create a, a tea or a porridge of of grain and, and hot water. That's right. What and what happens during that that period of mashing is uh, you're pulling the the sugars out of the the uh, the grain into the liquid, which will be called wort. Mm -hmm. But uh, more importantly, you're uh, precipitating an enzymatic process. Okay. Uh, inside the grain itself are different enzymes, and they will chop that more complex sugar up into different uh, smaller sugars. Mm -hmm. And the these there's there they have various names like beta glucanase and alpha amylase and beta amylase. Mm -hmm. These these different uh, enzymes work in different temperature bands. Right. So if as a brewer you want to get as much of that sugar out of there and leave as little body, yeah, get as you know leave no body behind like no get all the sugars out yeah you want to be efficient in fact efficiency is what they use to talk about right you will uh heat your mash to different temperatures so that those temperature bands that those different enzymes are active in will break will do their action and break that begin breaking that uh, sugar those more complex sugars and proteins down and how big are those temperature bands are we talking about Five degrees two degrees uh, no they're degrees? Pre they're pretty broad the two main ones um go from about the the lower one is about 135 to like 100 and I've seen things from 148 to 152 mm -hmm. and then the other one is uh like 148 something also to uh, 162 okay so if you want to leave some sugars behind too the other the other way to go here is you can use fewer of these steps and typically what a brewer will do is he'll mash warmer because the warmer you do uh the mash the you'll you'll miss that first temperature band right uh, so brewers like in England will do one, uh, a thing called a single infusion mash. They'll dump all their water in and most home brewers do this too. Right. All their water in at one temperature and just let it sit there for a while until all that enzymatic activity has happened. And then they pull the water off. Right. So that's base. that's the basic process of, of, uh, uh, what's called mashing. And the point of that is to get the sugars out of the, uh, grain and prepare them for, Fermentation. And so depending on exactly what you're looking for in terms of the body of your beer, the alcohol content of your beer, you'll you'll use those temperature bands to get the different sugars out. That's right. So this is we're getting, you know, I don't we don't need to go into how that specifically works, but um, brewers can control their mash to produce different profiles that are thinner bodied or heavier bodied, depending on how they want their beer to beer to taste. Um, right. So we're going to be talking as we go along about ingredients uh, and process. We're going to be tasting some beers. Mm -hmm. So what we've just been talking about now is the function of malt in a uh, beer. And when you taste beer, you'll taste different kinds of beer will be led by different kinds of flavors. There's all different kinds of flavors going to be in beer. And some of them, sometimes you really can't taste one of them. Right. Sometimes one is so overwhelming that it, the others are just really in, in uh, small proportion. If you're going to get malty flavors, it comes from this process. This is where you prepare the malty profile of your beer. Mm -hmm. So 
not only will you use these the mash that we're talking about, but you use different grains, like chocolate malts and caramel malts and all these things to right. get to create that flavor profile that you want. So let's why don't we taste right. a malty beer? Uh, and there are some of these out there, really obvious ones are like porters and stouts. All their flavor come from malt because they're roasted malts. Mm -hmm. But we have something here that's uh, a more subtle expression of malt. That's right. Yeah. So uh, when I was thinking about uh, we we we've we've uh, we discussed getting a malty beer, a hoppy beer, and a yeasty beer. Um, and so when I was thinking about a malty beer, what I wanted to, uh, what I immediately thought about was our trip to England uh, and Scotland. Um, and thinking about how they use malt there, often malt is a is a featured uh, flavor in the beers. And one of my favorites um, that I've had uh, over um, all of my drinking experience is uh, a beer from Bellhaven Brewery in um, Scotland. And it is uh, uh, called, uh, appropriately, Scottish Ale. Um, <laughs> the reason I got the Bellhaven one, though, is because you'll see a lot of Scottish ales here in the United States by American brewers. Um, and American brewers tend to go super heavy on the body. So right. these Scottish ales are very malt forward, but also extremely heavy, very thick beers. Um, what I love about this beer, and I'm going to open it now, so I'm going to put it right there. Yeah, while you're opening it, I'll say it's weird that Americans got this idea that Scottish ales were really heavy, thick, malty things. Because except in a style or two, that's completely wrong. There we go. So what's great about this beer is it is it features the malt. It's the flavors that are in the present in the beer. There's very little hot presence, just enough to balance it. But it's really a, a malt-forward beer, but it's not thick and heavy. In fact, if you look at it, it's quite a clear beer. Uh, it's sort of a, a medium amber. It's not, um, it's quite translucent. Um, it's easy to see through in the glass here. Uh, it's not these super heavy, super thick, but it's um, brilliantly uh, malty, malt forward. I'm going to taste a little bit here because it's enticing. Yes. This is a beer that um, they brew stronger for the American market. It says 5.2 on the back of the bottle. Uh, if you buy this in Scotland, I think it's closer to 4%. Uh, yeah, it also has a wonderful color. I love how in England, the, what they think of as, in Scotland, in Great Britain, what they think of as pale is quite a bit darker than what we think of as pale. Right. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things, by the way, I'll just uh, sort of mm -hmm. caveat emptor slightly. Uh, Bellhaven was acquired by the Green King Group um, in England. Um, we visited the Green King Brewery. They have quite a, a, a mm -hmm. fantastically uh, modern um, bottling line there. And they took a decision a while back to... Um, to ship it, to to uh, bottle everything in clear bottles and ship and ship it across <laughs> far and wide. Uh, we in fact talked to the guys there and tried to convince them that this was a bad decision, um, but uh, they persisted. Which the brewers wholeheartedly agreed with. Uh, well, yeah, off the record. They, off, yeah, well, yeah, they, privately they were being very polite. Privately, um, let's let it, let us just say that it, it came apparent to us that they might share this, um, and so it's sometimes very hard to find. Uh, uh, a good bottle of Scottish ale. This was not too bad, actually. No, this was actually very nice. I yeah. think um, one nice thing about uh, Scottish ale, if you have to buy an, an, uh, a British product that's in a clear bottle, well, Scottish ales don't have a lot of uh, yeast or a lot of uh, hops. hops to be light struck, so it's not so bad. Right. This is a, If you guys uh, out there in, in pod world uh, want an example of a nice malty beer, this is a really good one. Um, <clears throat> there are some... Uh, tiny bit of uh, yeast characteristics here. Mm -hmm. For the most part, what we're getting when you taste a bottle of uh, Bellhaven is like a lush uh, symphony of, of malt. Yes. So you're getting um, 
there's I think they might use a little bit of roasted malt because there's a tiny bit of uh, mm-hmm. it's not really roast but it's just a little hint of shadow underneath mm-hmm. and then there's a uh, nuts and caramel and yes I would call it nutty caramely mm. really delightful and this is actually a good moment to talk about the difference how Bellhaven achieves this relative to quite a bit of body too American versus, yeah still 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 quite a bit of body. Oh, that's good. It's been a while since I've had one of those. Yeah, that's very nice. Uh, and this is a good bottle, um, by the way. Um, but one of the things that uh, that British brewers do um, that seems to be still kind of uh, anathema to American brewers is they'll use um, sugar, just simple sugar, mm-hmm. in the in the brewing. So what does that do um, uh, in brewing? It's a funny thing. People, uh, it, 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 it would seem natural that if you add sugar, it's going to make a beer sweet. But the opposite happens because when you add sugar, it's simple sugars. And yeast love simple sugars. They can always eat simple sugars. So all the sugar you add to a beer will be consumed by the yeast. Right. So it'll dry it out. It'll actually make it more dry. Right. And um, as you well know. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 it, and, and, and it helps to thin out the, the beer as well. So you can, you can create a malt-forward beer that isn't so heavy by adding a little bit of sugar. So that dries, out, dries it out and thins out um, the body a little bit. And so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the main reasons why American brew, uh, Scottish ales, for example, tend to be really thick and treacly. And these British versions actually are much, much more um, sort of medium bodied. Right. And it's an, it's an interesting phenomenon when you add sugar that it will actually make a malty beer, the malt, uh, it'll give it a little bit more of a pedestal to stand on mm-hmm. because exactly. you don't have those malty flavors uh, vying against each other. Yeah, that's what I would. Uh, so, so interestingly, I would even describe this as sort of a bright beer. Mm-hmm. It's bright in the sense that the malt flavors are very much present and on the tongue. Uh, I find American versions tend to be very muddy. Right, um, I think the that's opposite, right. just sort of dank, and there's lots and tons and tons of malt, and they'll still throw in plenty of hops because we're in the U.S. And um, so, I, uh, if you're really interested in, in tasting sort of um, the the sort of typical British uh, malt presentation, this is a really good place to start. And other other beers that have a lot of malt character are many German beers like Box, mm-hmm. um, Dunkel. Uh, just many of the Bavarian lagers are actually are, are pretty malt forward. Yep. Um, and then dark dark uh, beers that that have a lot of roast malt. When you're tasting those beers, basically when you're tasting a porter or a stout, you might get a little bit of the hop in the background. Um, right. You probably detect the yeast very little. It's mostly what you're tasting. It's like coffee. You're tasting the, those roasted malts. So. In many beer styles, malt really can be a dominant flavor. Yeah, exactly. So when you're tasting a porter or a stout, you're sort of tasting the French roast of the <laughs> of right. the malt world, right? So you're getting the really dark malts. Not all of them. I mean, you, as you mentioned, you start with a pale malt base typically because you need a lot of sugar that the yeast can eat. Uh, and then it doesn't take a ton of dark malt to actually change the, the character of the beer a lot. So Right, 10% and you're, you're in business. Yep, yep, exactly. Okay, so from the mash, what happens is uh, the brewers then move it over to the move the wort. Now the liquid that is coming off that mash is known as wort. W O R T, pronounced mm-hmm. wort. You might see this uh, written. It's pronounced like like wort. Mm-hmm. Uh, the there's a process called loudering where the the uh, the liquid is separated from the mash. It's a technical thing we don't really need to go into, but. If you go to a brewery, you might see a louder ton. That's the process where the, the wort is separated from the mash. Yeah, typically there's a screen, uh, and the screen will catch the, the the grain on top and allow the water to to uh, percolate down through it. 
Right. And then uh, a brewer will typically rinse off the grain bed as well, mm -hmm. a process called sparging. Yeah, you want to get all of that sugar, all the residual sugar that's still sort of sticking to the grain off. Yep. So you rinse it out. And then you go to the boil. Uh, and the boil is where we move to the, the if you look at the brewing process as like each, each one will expose a different ingredient uh, characteristics, mm -hmm. the boiling is all about the hops. Right. Um, it does purify the wort, which is good. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a, if you were an old medieval brewer, uh, you might not boil it for very long, but you'd want to sterilize it. Right. Would have kept the bla black plague away. Would have been good. Uh, but the reason that you would boil it for an hour or longer has much more to do with the hops, uh, because the way that the, the how long the hops are exposed to the, the the boiling temperature will do different things to them. Hops, hops are very complex. Something like 400 flavor and aroma compounds in a hop. Um, so let's just stop for a second to describe what a hop is. A hop is uh, essentially the flower of a vine or a vine, as you once pedantically uh, suggested. And if you're going to get, if you're going to taunt me, I'll tell you it's a strobile, <laughs> okay. not a flower. So it's a strobile from the vine yes. of a plant that grows up from the ground. And um, if you go to a hop field, typically there's about, what, 10 foot long? Uh, Twice that, 20. 20 foot long, excuse me. Uh, mine mine I got up with my big long ladder and made it about 10 feet. Yeah, I think they're uh, usually about 18, but yeah. Okay, pretty, so pretty about tall. about 20 feet high, you'll, the, there'll be a wire overhead uh, that sort of that, that goes all the way down the row of, of uh, a bunch of hop plants. And then uh, intermittently along the way, there'll be uh, a wire that's hanging, dangling down from this um, horizontal wire overhead, and uh, uh, hop vines will start growing up those those right. uh, wires or strings, I guess. Um, and so you get, you basically get row after row after row of these 18 to 20 foot long plants that are all producing strobiles. Strobiles, yes. The female plant, you want the female. The male doesn't really work very well. So then the, uh, they collect these hops and you put the, put it in your beer. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the, the two kind of key elements that we're most concerned about in the hop are uh, the acids and the oils. Mm -hmm. And they behave differently in the mat, in the in the boiling process. In order to get the bitterness out of a hop, you actually have to convert the alpha acids, which are one of the varieties of acids in a hop, mm -hmm. to something called. You have to isomerize it, which is the process of boiling. Will will convert will chemically change these, okay. uh, so they become iso alpha acids, and that's where you get your bitterness. Right. Until you do until you boil it, you uh, or until you expose it to heat, uh, hops will not release their bitterness. And I'm going to put you on the spot about how long ago were hops introduced into brewing? How, how long have they known the hops have this characteristic? We know that the Hanseatic League cities of around 1200 were the first ones to really popularize it. Mm -hmm. um, monks were using it before then, and it was sporadic, and it's a little bit hard to say. Right. There's a, like a 300-year period where it looks like somebody started using them. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe in the 800s, mm -hmm. but then there's not really much of a record of it, and then they're being used again in the 1200s. Right. So it's um, about a thousand years. All right, can't stump the can't stump the author of the beer bible. Well, not with that one. <laughs> Keep trying. I'm sure you will. Okay. Uh, so uh, when you're boiling the beer, you want to put some of the hops in at the very start. Let's say we're going to do a, a 90 minute boil mm -hmm. or a 60 minute boil. It doesn't really matter. Um, different. Uh, different breweries do it different times. Uh, over that, over the course of that hour, those hops will just float around the kettle, and uh, the iso acids, iso alpha acids, will be converted to bitterness. 
during that process, it's very, you know, you were talking about an hour of boiling water mm -hmm. or about boiling wort. It pretty much breaks other stuff down. All the other delicate aroma and flavor compounds are boiled off. Right. So if you just add uh, hops at the start of the boil, at the very end, you'll have a little bit of bitterness and you won't really be able to detect any aroma or flavor. Right. It'll just be gone. So then brewers begin to add hops throughout the boil. And the later you add it to the boil, the more those delicate essential oils are preserved. Right. And they provide the aroma. And together with some of the flavor compounds, the, the, the aromatics and the flavor compounds together will create flavor. So right. all that stuff that we, we love in a good IPA it's not just the bitterness. Many people, when they talk about hoppiness, this is one reason why I don't like the, the use of IBUs to reflect bit hoppiness. Right. Because it may be a very hoppy beer, but not very not much very bitterness. Bitter. And it may be, a, or yeah, exactly. It may have a lot of uh, IBUs, but not really be very flavorful in the way that we, especially here in the United States, have grown to love beers with all their lush tropical and forest aromas and flavors. Yeah, you still often hear people regard uh, or or describe a beer as hoppy when they really mean bitter. Yeah. Um, but I think that's changing slowly as we start seeing these incredibly hoppy be beers. <laughs> well, I just am. I'm, while we're of, talking about hops, I'm opening an IPA here, and even just from the bottle, it just is uh, wafting yeah, insanely. So, uh, so this is another one of my acquisitions. This one actually is the Ballast Point Sculpin IPA. Uh, I got this for two reasons. One, uh, because we've uh, we mentioned Ballast Point in terms of being uh, um, acquired, uh, uh, but also I've never actually had it. So for one billion dollars, for one billion dollars, uh, our billion dollar beer here, the billion dollar beer, and and almost cost that much, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is one reason I've never tried it before because uh, it's enormous, it's incredibly expensive, and we're and we are uh, uh, saturated with wonderful IPAs up here in the Northwest. So paying a premium for uh, Ballast Point was never on in the cards until now. Right. Um, so this is a hoppy beer. Yeah. So this is the Sculpin, their their uh, standard IPA, their okay. flagship brand. Mm, and it, yeah, it's uh, just taking a whiff, and hops are ever present on the nose. And this is one of these examples of um, just from the nose, I can tell you that it's going to be extremely hoppy. I really don't know how bitter it's going to be. Right. But we know that they these this brewery has put tons and tons of hops in at the end of the the process, probably after the boil, and probably they've dry hopped it. Mm -hmm. So another place. We'll, we'll talk about fermentation later, but um, uh, you can, after fermentation, you can add hops and uh, they'll soak in the, the cold beer at that point. It's right. beer and they will pull off more of these uh, aroma compounds. Yeah. And doing that more and more has become more and more the, the way to make a big hoppy IPA um, these days with these new modern hops. When we ha poured out the, the Bellhaven and smelled that, almost everything in the nose was malt. It was just... Mm -hmm. It just it's, smells. It's nutty. It's grainy. It's uh, caramelly on the, the nose. And the ballast point, when you smell that, it's almost impossible to smell anything but hops. It's just yeah, piney and citrusy, like a prototypical modern American IPA. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's see what it tastes like, and we can. And by the way, speaking of the malt, so a typical malt bill for an IPA will be something very simple, typically just. Almost exclusively, if not exclusively, pale malt. A little, a little bit of crystal maybe for color. Yeah, it, it depends on uh, how how your you know brewers can do different things, and this is always one of those uh, 
uh, questions of the brewers. It's like they're like chefs. Mm-hmm. Making a beer is very much like cuisine. You're actually ba- you're cooking a thing. You're making it out of ingredients. And each, each brewer, just like each chef, will make his uh, his dish slightly different. Mm-hmm. So some brewers like theirs to be made out of um, very slender malt so that they're, they finish thin mm-hmm. uh, and don't have much body and don't have much color mm-hmm. to get the malt completely out of the way for the hops. And then others like to give... Uh, the, their IPA is a little bit of a, a tango partner, so the hops have something to work with. Yep. And some will use some color malts, which won't add very much in the way of body or or uh, flavor, but will will it will add color. Yeah, we didn't really talk about that uh, very much, but it doesn't it doesn't take very much of a, a more darker roasted malt or a crystal malt to add a little color. So That's you can right. just add a touch of a darker malt, and you can really sort of tune the color how you want yeah. um, without really affecting the flavor. So that's another way, by the way, that, that uh, it affects your uh, taste because part of your taste is, as you keep reminding us, is uh, through the eye as much as the nose and the tongue. Right. That's exactly right. So, th- this, so one, this is um, really yummy. It is really yummy. It's, it's, got, it, it's an interesting balance. It's, it, does, it, is a, it does have some IBUs. I don't know how many IBUs it yeah, has. Yeah, I was about it, to say, this is, I mean, uh, given the modern standard, it's a little bit on the bitter side, um, which doesn't surprise me. It's from San Diego, right? That's right. It is from San Diego. Exactly. They're famous for their IBUs. They love their IBUs down yeah. there. They like they like a good bitter bitter snap to their beer. And this one has both a bitter snap, but also that sort of very modern characteristic of being a very sort of floral. This one's more sort of I would I get more like pine and grapefruit um, from this one. What yeah, about you? I think so. It's uh, kind of old school in that way too. It's uh, yeah. the we would consider a classic American flavor like sea hops. People often talk about sea hops. You'll, we're, we don't have the time to go into all the different hop varieties and what they, what they present to a beer. But um, there was, as the hop industry was getting going in the United States, and they were breeding hops. They produced a bunch of hops that started with the letter C: mm-hmm. Cascade, Centennial, Chinook, right. and uh, these were the ones that were used to make the the, the classic American profile early on. So people brewers will often make a throw what they now consider throwback, like throwback to the 90s, right? A throwback style uh, of sea hops, right? Old school. And this kind of, I don't know what hops they use, but this has sort of that classic sea hop character. And it's it's well done, though. I'd say it's it's wonderfully balanced. Um, It's a pretty uh, boozy beer at 7%. 7%, yeah. But it, but it actually, um, it's really quaffable. You could drink, you could just pound these things. Yeah, and and talking about sort of the malt character that, uh, or the body of this beer, I would, this is sort of a, a medium-bodied IPA, you can at seven percent, you could make quite a thick, and you, and there are some locally that are pretty thick right. uh, IPAs that have much more sort of um, uh, unfermented sugars in them, and, and and they get pretty pretty dense. But this one's sort of a, a medium-bodied one, which is nice. I, that's what I prefer actually. Right. So as we're tasting this, what we what we can determine just by tasting it, we can uh, we can just through our own uh, sensory apparatus, we can tell that it's got uh, a fair bit of hops added at the front of the boil. Yep, because it's bitter. Because it's bitter. Mm -hmm. And then there are hops added for flavor, probably at the end of the boil, Mm -hmm. um, because it has those really distinctive um, sea hop. It tastes uh, citrusy. Like it actually, this is what, when you're tasting an IPA and it actually tastes like juice, uh, that comes as the flavor hops. Those are usually late edition hops. And then it's got a ton of aromatics. Mm-hmm. insane aromatics. Yeah. So those are post-kettle and probably dry hopping. Yeah. So when you taste a beer like this that lacks one of those 
things. This happens to have them all. Mm -hmm. You can kind of tell, oh, I see they didn't use very many late edition hops, or maybe they didn't dry hop this. Or Yeah, and by the way, if you really want to sound cool when you're talking about beer amongst your friends, uh, brewers will talk about the hot side and the cold side uh, yeah, uh, true. of brewing. And so the stuff that you throw in the boil is all hot side additions. And then the stuff that's getting more and more emphasized these days in these super hoppy, saturated flavored beers are these cold side additions. So it's when you throw in a whole bunch of hops and let them sit in the in the conditioning tank where, where the beer sits cold after uh, yeast has been introduced and it's in the fermentation process. Which is a perfect segue to our, our next phase of the brewing process. We are good. We are really good. We so semi-pro, maybe. The, brew, the beer is now, the wort is now a thick, sweet, uh, treacly thing with mm -hmm. a lot of hops floating in it. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to taste it at this point, it is uh, unpleasant. Um, brewers like to taste it here just because they can extrapolate what it's going to taste like. But it's kind of gross because it has way too much sugar. It's way out of balance. Right. So now we're going to send it to the cold side, as you mentioned. We're going to get it out of the brew house where all the, all the heating has gone on. We're going to cool it down. Uh, to a temperature appropriate for the yeast, and we'll talk about the yeast here in a minute, and mm -hmm. ferment it. And that the, the fermentation, uh, the way that yeasts work is they eat the sugars that we have prepared by making them simple and digestible. Mm -hmm. And it produces, just in wonderful symbiosis to our, for our needs, alcohol and carbonation. So these are the, these are the it's, it's waste matter, mm -hmm. and it's actually the stuff we want, so it works very nicely. Right. Um, we, uh, so you start with a thick treacly wort and you end up with beer after right. you ferment it. So the yeast, though, is um, the last element that can add quite a bit to a beer. And, and, and it's actually, I think, the more subtle, the most, uh, maybe subtle is the wrong word, elusive. Uh, people, you kind of have to try beers and have somebody point out this flavor here mm -hmm. that it might taste fruity to you which makes maybe you think it's the malt. Actually, it comes from the uh, the yeast production. Yeah. So Yeah, and these days with these new hops that produce all kinds of interesting flavors, sometimes it's not always clear. That's the right. Or the, the hop. You're getting fruity notes from, you can potentially get fruity notes from the malt, the hops, and the yeast. So it's a little hard to tease these apart. Right. So, yeah, go ahead. And what I was going to say, and we call the, the flavors that, that uh, come from the yeast what? Well, let's talk about yeast first of all. Yeast, you can think about, there's there's two. Yeah, what is it? What, what are yeast? Well, yeast are fungus, fun, fungi, mm -hmm. but um, if for our purposes, there are basically three kinds of yeast. Mm -hmm. There are the two kinds of domestic yeast, which are ale and lager yeasts, mm -hmm. and then there's wild yeast. So let's take these in, in turn. Okay. Uh, all yeasts will produce more flavor and aroma compounds the warmer they're fermented. Uh, some yeasts are have been bred basically in the brewery mm -hmm. because you have natural selection. Every time you pitch a, every time you put yeast into a beer right. and then harvest the yeast afterwards because it will, these cells will do all their business and then you can take them back out and use them again. Right. Uh, you're creating a little ecosystem in your brewery and they will migrate. So all across the world, people that use their own yeast strain, every brewery will have what they call house character from the yeast strain because they have been naturally selecting it over uh, uh, hundreds or thousands of generations of repitching it. Um, in So we have d the domestic strains that we have uh, are the, these categories. Some of them have been naturally selected to work at cold temperatures and some have been naturally selected to work at warmer temperatures. Right. The lager temperatures work at colder temperatures. The ale uh, strains work at 
what did I just say? The lager yeasts work at lower temperatures. Yeah. The uh, ale yeasts work at warmer temperatures. Right. Um, and the warmer the, the warmer you ferment, the more flavor and aroma compounds you get. And the two key categories that we're going to talk about here, and they're they're directly related to your experience when you're drinking the beer, are esters and phenols. Mm-hmm. Esters are these uh, these fruity things and they can there's different ones and uh if you've ever had a bavarian uh vice beer mm-hmm. there's that banana character yes that's an that's a that's an ester it's called isoamyl isoamyl acetate mm-hmm. it's a very specific banana flavor they actually even use it in, can- in candy because it's so distinctive yeah in fact that's that's one of the first i think i think for the novice beer drinker that's one of the first uh sort of really really distinguishable yeast flavors you can pick out. So yeah. you find a beer like that, taste the banana, it's really coming from the yeast. It's no, there's nothing else that's going to create that. Exactly. Um, there are others, uh, different different uh, esters that will be produced. And this happens in all fermentation. So you get esters in wine, you get esters in uh, uh, cider as well. But they can uh, produce flavors like apple and rose and mm-hmm. um, uh, citrusy flavors and wonderful little uh, elements. And, and it's in, a cool thing about this, if you... Uh, Try a saison, for example, that can be very dry, uh, almost no residual sugars. These esters, which taste fruity, mm-hmm. will, in a way, balance that dryness and give the perception of sweetness. Right. And when you so, if you taste a saison and you think it's sweet, it's probably, uh, if especially if it, if it's a dry saison, yeah, those are th- those are coming from the esters, which is a sort of interesting way that saison balances yeah, itself. Yeah, it's a, a different type of balance. We usually talk about. Yeah. The other main category of. Uh, yeast production is this thing called phenols, mm-hmm. and these are uh, smoky, spicy characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a phenol also, and go back to the Bavarian Weiss beer, uh, that, that clove quality is right. a classic uh, character you get out of, out of uh, uh, Bavarian yeast, but it can also present as um, a more smoky flavor. Uh, sometimes it can, it, people who drink scotch will have discovered ones that kind of tend towards band-aid that mm-hmm. comes from phenolics um but it can be like um it can also be almost like tannins or pepper right. so uh, a little bit sp- of spice so fruit and spice mm-hmm. you get that when you ferment uh warmer i'm going to crack this because we're going to taste a yeast forward beer uh but then there's the other category of uh, domestic malts which as i do this maybe you can talk about which are lagers um, which are fermented cool uh, right. So, and if you're a if you're a home brewer, typically what you start using are ale ale yeast because ale yeast um, ferment at room temperature. So, for, for home brewers out there, that tends to be where you start. Uh, lager yeast um, uh, typically ferment um, at this range of temperatures that's hard to reproduce in the household because it's warmer than your fridge and it's cooler than your, your room. So, usually in the in the mid 50s to low 60s. Uh, I think. A little lower than that, like upper the, 40s upper to mid 40s. 50s. To, well, yeah, see, it tells you how much I actually lager, which is yeah, almost not at all. So We've done it a couple of times in your very cold basement, but then you went and got weather eyes or something. So. I did, but we can, but here in Portland, you can actually, the last time I did it, I did it outside. It's yeah, pretty put, good. It, put it, it in the garage. Uh, yeah, and the, the those yeasts are, don't, don't, because it's so cold, they're not very efficient and they have a hard time. So it takes longer for them to ferment and then they create this kind of rough beer. And so when when we uh, when you talk about lagering beers, lager means to age, mm-hmm. lagern, I think uh, means to age in German. Um, it needs to sit in c- cool temperatures for a while for those flavors to all kind of harmonize and right. 
the rough. It'll it'll produce uh, a lot of a lot of lager yeast will produce sulfur, uh, sulfurous compounds which mm -hmm. you don't want in your beer. Um, I tasted an an incomplete uh, uh, Pilsner Urquell at the brewery mm -hmm. in Pilsen one time, and it was atrocious. <laughs> it's like a, it was like a two weeks into lagering, and it was undrinkable. It was just terrible. Yeah, and so from a business perspective, it's another reason why I think craft brewers in the U.S. started with ales a little bit easier. It's a, it's a lot quicker. Right. And so time is money when you're just sitting on and, and you have to have a place to store lager. So it took a while for lager, for lagers to really catch on in, in American craft brewing, and part, partly because we need to mature enough where you could actually afford to, afford to make them. That's right. And it's reason, the reason you still don't see that many lagers because breweries are growing so fast they don't have tank space. So they'll maybe they'll brew lagers in the winter when they have extra tank space. Yeah, yeah. To have a beer sitting there for a month or more in, in the tank is just like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> The last category uh, of, of different kinds of yeasts is the category that, for the beer that we have here in front of us, it's wild yeast. Yeah. So these are ancient, these are just ambient yeasts. These are just floating around this uh, house or wherever you are, are yeast and bacteria, all tons of different kinds. Mm -hmm. um, the mic we're, we're learning a lot more about the microbiome inside the body. Well, there's microbiomes everywhere. Yeah. And when you create a sticky, warm uh, liquid, but it's full of sugar, yep. these guys want to get in there and they want to yep. go to town. Uh, and that's how the first beers were made. They just left sticky warm wort out. And Sitting there and waited. Waited and, and the yeast went crazy. Kind of kind of like what will happen to your apple juice if you just that's right apple juice and just leave it. Yep. It'll happen. Uh, it, modern brewing can actually be, I think, described with not too much hyperbole as the uh, the the uh, effort of getting wild yeast out of the brew house. <laughs> everything they, everything modern brewing in the 20th century did was like to prevent that. So it's funny, here in the 21st century, we're going back to wild yeast. And what we have here in front of us is a Brasserie St. James mm -hmm. from Reno, Nevada, which I don't know anything about. Uh, the brewer sent me this bottle of beer, and this is a spontaneously fermented beer. Oh, really? Yes, from Reno, Nevada. Um, so so spontaneous fermentation is exactly what you described, is you yep. leave your wort sitting there and just let the wild yeast in the, in the air uh, inoculate your beer. And when you taste these beers, these are, if you want to know how vivid yeasts can be and what they can do to a beer, these wild beers, and there's, there's a, a few styles out there that, that use these wild uh, yeasts. We, we talked about the Flanders beer, the, the Tart Flanders beers a mm -hmm. while back when we talked about Freem and Rodenbach. Um, some Saisons are wild, the Lambics are wild, mm -hmm. uh, and Americans are getting into these. And some of the strains have even been cultured. So there's a, a strain called Brettanomyces, which you see often. Actually, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of brewers use this word Brettanomyces on their labels or they, the, 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 high, the, the shortened version Brett mm -hmm. um, to refer to beers that they're making. It's a wild yeast that's been cultivated. Right. Uh, and I think almost no one knows what that means. I think there's a thing right now called Brett IPAs, uh, which are made with primary fermented with this wild strain of yeast. Uh, and I think you have domesticated to, this wild. <laughs> this, yeah, this is a domesticated wild strain. And they just, I, I see, I go to a pub and it'll say Brett IPA. And I think, I bet 75% of the people look at that and think, who's Brett? Right. <laughs> What does this have? What is this? Uh, this is bold. This is a this is a spontaneous fermented, unblended ale uh, from Reno, Nevada. I know. Uh, from Brasserie Saint Jean, I'll call it. Thank Saint you. James. So uh, cheers and let's let's try it. Yeah.
this is going to be 100% all the flavor we're going to get out of this thing is from the yeast. Mm -hmm. So we, I, if we can taste any malt, it'll, I'll be really shocked. And, and they kind of, they often don't use a lot of hops in these because sour and bitter don't, don't go well together. Yeah. Oh, it's just, I mean, the nose too, when you taste, when you smell one of these, uh, wild ales, you can see what a, what, uh, uh, the yeast and the firm, the process of fermentation, the, the insanely vivid yeah. aromas that, that just the process of fermentation can create. You should be talking while I'm drinking. Yeah, I'm, I'm experiencing, I'm experiencing the beer. This dead is... air, man. We can't have dead air. Yeah. Mm. It's a, it's actually quite nicely balanced. It's... This is, yeah, I was, I was about to say, this is really sort of uh, accomplished beer for something that's spontaneously fermented. Yeah. Not having much control at all. You don't have any control. These are, these, I, I love these beers. Uh, I don't actually love all of them, but I love the idea of these beers because they are in the beer world, the only example that we have of really classic terroir. This is the flavor of Reno, Nevada. You can't get this flavor anywhere else because the bugs that this guy used to ferment this beer are going to be different if we do it here in Portland or somewhere else, yeah. uh, Brussels. So you get to taste the flavor of the place. And in this case, I was just, why, why I had the dead air because I was really trying to think about how I would describe the flavor. This is very uh, lemony, I would even say. Yeah, it is. It's very lemony. Yeah. I agree. And I like it. He like has, um, I think it's a, a fairly young lambic because there's, it, it's um, some, these things, these wild yeasts will uh, eat all the sugars. They're mm -hmm. very voracious. Yeah. And there's a little bit of body here. Yeah. There's not, it's not super dry yet. Yeah. And it's, that's, it's a nice presentation because it, uh, the tart flavors can be a little bit insist insistent in some of these. So if you have some malt, as we learned from the, yeah, the Bellhaven. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about, about tart and sour and how yeast creates that. Well, they, they literally create acids. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's one type of bacteria called lactobacillus, and you'll, you'll see uh, many beers made in the market now uh, are like Berliner Weisse, Goza. These are beers that are made with lactobacillus, not wild yeast, but lactobacillus. Actually, let's not talk. Mm -hmm. Berliner Weisse needs bretonomyces, but that's a whole other thing. Let's not go into there. Basically, the main thing that you're tasting in these beers are uh, lactic acid that's produced through lactobacillus. Right. Uh, in a wild yeast, they will produce, uh, and actually there's another back, another bacteria, pediococcus, caucus. That sounds like a bacteria. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think it's a yeast bacteria. Yeah. It also produces lactic acid. So in lambics, if you taste the lactic, the lactic acid, that's actually coming from pediococcus. Brennomyces often do not produce a ton of acidity, but they can, they can produce another one called acetic acid, mm -hmm. which is the, the acid from... Uh, vinegar. So you, uh, lactic acid is the the, la the acid that you taste in yogurt. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of a, a pure, um, almost citrusy or lemony. It can be a little bit like that. Yep. Quite gentle in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and then acetic acid, vinegar is aggressive and you don't want a ton of that. And right. it can be kind of rugged. Mm -hmm. So these, these different kinds of flavors of acid will be produced uh, by with the wild yeast strains and bacteria. They will not be produced by domesticated strains. And is that on purpose? It is on purpose. It's something that's been that's been sort of selected away out of. Yeah, things. modern brewing has gone in that direction. Um, one of the problems uh, is if you want to brew, if you want to brew those kinds of beers, just standard beers, right. and you've got a brew house that has these wild beers in them, uh, you're always risking the opportunity that some of these little wild guys will 
get in your brew house and start doing yeah. their magic on all yeah, your other there's beer. There's a lot of brewers that don't want anything to do with Brett at all. Yeah, so that can be a problem. So, so I think we're getting pretty good here. The the last thing, uh, which is uh, I'm going to take a ton of description, is the packaging. Uh, after the after the beer ferments, it will sit. It will either lager for a period of time and mellow out, or sometimes even ales will condition, which is sort of like lagering. Mm-hmm. Um, brewers will often uh, uh, make the the temperature very cold near freezing, which precipitates out uh, the yeast cells and other stuff. It clarifies. It's a it's a, a way of clarifying the beer. Right, and then. Uh, they will either, so then, then you have to prepare it for packaging, which means you f- uh, carbonate it, two ways to carbonate it. You can put it in a bottle with uh, yeast and sugar, and it will do a secondary fermentation, mm-hmm. just like the primary fermentation. Mm-hmm. You've added more sugar, so now the yeasts can... Yeast will produce a slight, slightly more alcohol and then some CO2. Yep. And in Belgium, every single beer, it goes through secondary fermentation in the bottle, re-fermentation in the bottle, and they have even a place called the warm room, which is where they leave the bottle so that fermentation will happen. And they consider it really critical to the uh, development of the the full profile, flavor profile of the beer, because those are all yeast-driven beers, and so they want even more opportunity for these Mm -hmm. esters and phenols to be built. But but generally, uh, a brewery will just uh, blow in CO2 into the tank, carbonate it in the tank, and then either bottle or can it and send it out. Uh, and then there's also cast conditioning, which uh, is sort of like bottle conditioning, but you do it at in, on English in, at English pubs for uh, in a cask. That's right. Yeah, and one and one other step, I'm, uh, you mentioned it very briefly in passing, but um, you can decide as your beer is going from the tank to um, to the bottle, or even in the process of of conditioning the beer, you can uh, filter it as well. Mm-hmm. And so some beers. Some breweries will, will use a filtering process both to sort of clarify the beer to make it really nice and clear uh, when you pour it out, but also they can filter out yeast and stop the fermentation process sort of precisely where they want. Uh, you, can, you can accomplish almost the same thing just by waiting a really long time because eventually the yeast will drop from suspension. It'll, right. it'll drop down to the bottom. And so there's a couple of ways to get really clear beers. One is to filter and one is just to condition them for a long time in a tank. Um, in the Northwest, we sort of have this tradition of cloudy, hazy beers, which has become almost a kind of a, uh, uh, something that uh, beer drinkers are looking for and want. Yeah, um, and, and I think there's actually a method to that madness. I've been pondering that a lot. Uh, I think it has to do with one thing that we should say about packaging, because a lot of people age their beers and they want to you know, develop them in their cellar. Most beer is not, not good in the cellar. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because you've created a chemical... Uh, a, a dynamic chemical environment in your beer. Mm-hmm. You've got all these volatile flavor and aroma compounds that come from the malt, the hops, and the yeast. They're they're prepared in that that bottle of beer, that that pint of beer, to be their most vivid, their most intense, their freshest. The longer you wait, uh, the more an entropy will take over. Right. It those all those dynamic uh, characteristics will begin to flatten out. Uh, and there will even be a chemical reaction because it's impossible to get oxygen out of a beer. And oxygen is a staling compound, and it will interact with all those wonderful flavor and aroma compounds, and it will flatten them out and stale them. So basically, uh, the packaging, everybody who packages beers does everything they can to keep oxygen out throughout the process, the brewing process, in fact, keep oxygen out, and they would love you to drink that beer as soon as possible. So especially if you're drinking something like this Ballast Point, um, you you want to drink that really fresh. Um Freshness is a big important thing, and I think one of the reasons that um, in the Northwest we have these cloudy beers is it's a visual clue that it's cl- it's it's fresh. Yeah. 
it's like right out of the brewery. We haven't we haven't filtered this thing. We haven't let it sit. It's just ready to go. Those hop uh, flavor and aroma compounds are just going to be popping vivid in here. So, yeah. and among the beer connoisseurs, you'll find different differing opinions. Some think that that cloudy beer is there's something wrong with your beer. It's cloudy. I particularly like it. I think that it to me it, it's evocative of the especially because I drink a lot of hoppy beer. So evocative of all the hops and and uh, um, and the freshness of the beer, as you say, as well. So um, I like I like a good cloudy beer. Um, but of course, I'm a child of the Northwest. So. Right. I'm with you. Also a child of the Northwest. All right. So there you go, everybody. I hope that. Uh, so that's that was how clear. you make beer, and how beer how beer is made translates into the flavors and the perceptions of beer um, as you drink it. And I hope you find that useful. Yeah, I do too. All right, you, so let, us, turn, oh, let us know on the mailbag. Let us know in the mailbag, which is where we're going to turn to next. So uh, as we talked about uh, in the last pod, we've um, uh, added some more structure to the format. We did our little news segment at the beginning. Um, after our main topic now, we, we, we turn to the mailbag. We invite you to submit uh, any kind of question, regardless of topic, anything about beer, uh, the beer business, uh, um, romance, whatever. <laughs> we're, we're, we're here to answer your questions. Our our podcast, fresh like a, a bottle of beer, a dynamic beverage, new new ingredients, fresh and ready to go. That's right. Into the mailbag. Okay, so what do we have in the mailbag this week, Jeff? So we have uh, three people wrote in when it's we. Really, Jeff's mailbag, by the way. That's why I ask him. Well, it's our mailbag, but Patrick won't read it, so I'm <laughs> false to me. Uh, we have three people who talked in. For some reason, we we just mentioned briefly uh, about how it seems like 20, the 22 ounce package is a kind of a, a bad package for the consumer because it's much more expensive uh, per ounce. And yeah, we, that was the economic puzzle we talked about. Is yeah. why, why is it that these 22 ounce bottles, which are cheaper for the breweries to, to, put 20, to, to produce one 22 ounce bottle than two 12 ounce or 11 ounce bottles, why do they charge more? Right, it's the, the phenomenon of uh, uh, the two liter bottle of soda is cheaper than a you know, volume and, and mm -hmm. packaging, less, the less the bigger volume with the less packaging. That's right. In, in the economics parlance, we call that the cube squared rule, which means uh -huh. that if you, if you square the surface area of a package, you cube the volume. Well, so holy moly. Go. Now I feel edumacated. That, yeah, that was worth the price of admission. Try, try, that, try that on your own. This is why you listen to the end of the stay, podcast. Stay at home and do the math. It'll work. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, we had three people. Uh, Marie Lesher from Seattle, Brian Roth, uh, Durham, North Carolina, and Mason Astley, uh, who did not say where he was from. Province unknown. Province unknown. Uh, all wrote in to talk about that. And they all basically said, yeah, it's kind of a screw deal on the one hand, if you look at it from the perspective of what I'm going to spend on a bottle of beer. Mm -hmm. uh, a single bottle of 12-ounce beer is a way better deal. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's a kind of inexpensive way to sample a beer. And mm -hmm. so... Um, we they all kind of rotated around that, and I, I pulled one quote here from from Brian, uh, which I think summarizes what people felt were basically saying. Uh, Even though a premium might be paid for a single 22 ounce bottle, the psychology of the sticker price for a one-time drinking experience is still easier to swallow. Pun intended, says Brian. That's not me. Than six experiences of the same beer for a higher price. Yeah, and I think I think that that's that's a big part of it. So. Um... Uh, to get a little bit pedantic, since I am a professor after all, uh, I talked about this cube squared rule. There's a couple other things that I think are going on here that we can relate to um, economic theory. One is that beer is an experience good, and what we mean by experience good is something that you don't know how much you're going to like until you actually try it. 
And so you can contrast beer, for example, with, um, say, clothes that you buy in a clothes store, where you can go and you can touch it and you can feel it. You can try it on. You can see the colors. You can see how good they, they feel and look on you. And so by the time you actually purchase it, you sort of know exactly how you feel about it. Um, you may not know uh, a few little things how durable it's going to be, but uh, you can make a pretty good guess. Um, with a beer, you have no idea, right. unless you've tried it before, really how much you're going to like it personally. Um, you can have people. And so uh, experience goods are interesting goods because um, uh, consumers have to sort of uh, make inferences um, before they purchase. And so for a risk-averse uh, individual, uh, you might not want to uh, make a big bet on an experience good until you've actually tried it. So in that sense, yep. uh, 22 ounce might um, be good for those risk-averse individuals. It sort of uh, lowers the risk. And we're especially, uh, we know from psychology, from um, what we call behavioral economics, which is um, uh, our euphemism for us um, stepping on the toes of psychologists, um, uh, and it also helps make your math models work better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, often often behavioral messes up all our, our models. So. Well, it, when they go when they when the mat when the models don't don't describe work, yeah. behavior, then you uh, then we just yeah resort to oh yeah, but it's because people are crazy <laughs> after all. Uh, no, not quite like that. But uh, uh, what we know from behavioral economics is that um, people are particularly loss loss averse. We don't like mm -hmm. losing. We like losing. We dislike losing more than we like winning. And so uh, this is a way to sort of um, uh, uh, mitigate those losses, perhaps. Um, uh, the other thing that's also true, even though it's true that it's cheaper to package something in bigger packages, um, if you think about the, um, the typical pricing scheme that you see almost everywhere, so you go into your uh, local um, uh, restaurant or, or fast food outlet or whatever, um, you'll probably have an opportunity to buy, you know, I don't know, a 16 ounce soda for a buck 50. Right. And then you can buy a 24 ounce soda for a buck 75 or something like that. Right, we call right. that, you see that all the time. It's called, in the parlance, it's called nonlinear pricing, but it's basically just volume discount. So the bigger, the more you buy of something, the cheaper per unit of that thing you get. And that's actually um, uh, true in this case as well, if you think about it. So we're sort of focused on the price per ounce, but really what you're doing is selling one 22 ounce bottle um, for a higher price and you're offering a volume discount for those who are going to go for a, a six pack and then usually even more of a discount if you go for a 12, uh, a 12 pack of, mm -hmm. of bottles as well. And so in that sense, it's, it's actually quite a typical economic pricing strategy hmm. that you see all the time. Um, uh, and um, why uh, do retailers and businesses do this because it actually makes uh, sense economically. You can show uh, quite easily. And I do, and if you want to take the class um, I'm offering in the spring, where, where I show <laughs> economics behind this, actually a profit-maximizing strategy. You get you get the high the higher demanders to, to pay more. And so in this case, if I know I like, uh, I don't know, um, uh, flat tire, <laughs> For example, uh, then, I'm then I'll for, go ahead. for our friends in uh, in New Belgium, I believe it's actually fat tire. But continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm trying. I'm trying very hard to avoid uh, always using um, Oregon and, and Washington brewers as, as references. So yeah, uh, that's good. Okay, so I'm going to go for my my favorite New Belgium beer, uh, uh, and I know I really like it, so I might go ahead and buy that 12 pack and take that take that volume discount. Um, because I've already, my demand is already there. I know that I'm, and so as a brewery, it makes sense to charge those people less and get them to buy more. Um, trust me on that. Um, and uh, I also think that there's um, 
there's one other thing is we also know that consumers tend to like variety. This is a way in which you can uh, uh, get more variety. You pay more, but you also get more variety. For example, if you buy three 22 ounce bottles rather than one six pack, mm -hmm. um, so you can you can uh, uh, achieve you know uh, consuming um, a wider variety of beers um, for a bit more a bit more money. What still is a little bit odd is when you see people who who will buy a 22 ounce bottle of something that's that's um, available as a six pack. Um, yeah, maybe it's the first time. Um, I, I'll still, by the way, I'm not exempt because I'll still buy 22 ounce bottles of, of something rather than rather than a six pack, even though I've had it many times. I know exactly exactly what I want. You're messing up the math models. Even you are irrational. Uh, well, no, no, no. See that that's just the models aren't describing my my preferences well enough. <laughs> You're and, never irrational. And so this is exactly and, and my point is is exactly why is that I actually. Given the fact that we do a beer, a beer podcast, it's actually true that I don't actually drink all that much beer. Right. Um, and right. so uh, a six pack actually can, can sit around for weeks mm -hmm. uh, in my fridge um, before I actually consume it all. And so I'll often actually consume 22 ounces just for the, just for the variety. Yeah, there you um, go. So there you go. And, uh, and, and, and I think they started, I don't know if any of this was purposeful in the start. I think they started mostly as a way to get beer on shelves in really limited shelf space. So yeah. And, can, and give breweries an opportunity to, uh, package a product without having to buy a bottling line and a whole right. big expensive thing. Yeah. At least here, many people do mobile bottling. I assume they do that elsewhere too. So it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting, uh, uh, marketing, uh, question and economics question. And I think that we have some, some half decent answers. Last time I was a little bit flippant about it and said sort of a, a puzzle, but it's not that much of a puzzle though. Yeah. Okay. So now we turn to the final segment of our podcast, which is beer Sherpa recommends. Ah, uh, beer Sherpa recommends yet a new feature. For all our listeners, always yes, always adding features, giving you the luxury edition of. And I think products. we can. I think we can. I think we've got uh, hard evidence that we have at least three listeners. So that's cool. Excellent. Yeah, we can. We can use the plural. Uh, so for those at least three listeners, uh, you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Uh, why don't you go? What, what 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 do you recommend this week for our for our uh, myriad of listeners? Well, I will I will go ahead and recommend uh, one of these Brett beers that I mentioned okay. earlier uh, on my tour around the country. I was in New York City and uh, trying to taste local beers. It's weird. Um, when you walk into a pub in New York City, it's really not that easy to find local beer. Um, mm -hmm. they, it's not a great beer city. And all those New Yorkers out there might come after me. But uh, I consider a good beer city a place where I can walk into any place and get local beer mm -hmm. um, and taste, or, or at least good beer, you know, at least a, a variety of different styles. Right. Um, it's not really that easy to do in New York, but there are a few places that you can go in and get good beer. And one of the best beers I had uh, came from, uh, or actually I should say, I think one of the best breweries working is this brewery called Other Half. Um, mm -hmm. uh, many of the beer geeks in, in New York pointed me to it, so I don't think I'm, I discovered anything uh, special here. But um, they made a beer called All Brett Everything, which is a Brett IPA. So this is one of those things that um, it's just a standard IPA, but it's fermented with this wild yeast, mm -hmm. which has been domesticated, but it's still a wild yeast. Right. So it produces exotic flavors. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you use it as a as a as a uh, primary, when you ferment only with bread, mm -hmm. it actually produces a lot of esters. Right. So bread is is famous for pr ester production, right. uh, and those esters often taste fruity, so they harmonize very nicely with the uh, the hops. And if you if you leave that beer to sit for a long time, it will get weirder and weirder as those yeasts continue to eat stuff. But right. if you if you drink it pretty fast, you don't get a lot of funkiness from the wild yeast, right. but you do get all the esters. The esters work really well with the uh, 
the uh, hops and it's uh, it can be a really wonderful ex experience. And I thought that uh, the other half did a spectacular job of making this citrus stew, both from the yeast and from the hops. It was really at a, a pub in lower Manhattan and it was really spectacular. Making so. you thirsty. Did they package? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if Just they package. Bring back? No. All right, other half. Yeah. Uh, we're waiting for samples. <laughs> <I'm> waiting for <laughs> That's samples. right. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Uh, okay, so my recommendation this week actually changed be, uh, uh, thanks to my trip to the store um, because uh, getting the Bellhaven Scottish Ale uh, made me think of Bellhaven's Twisted Thistle IPA. Ah, uh, yes. What's interesting about this is that classic. British brewers are sort of classic British ales are feature malts and uh, hops are used very subtly to balance the malts, but really it's the malt profile that um, is the first thing that you notice and, and you rarely notice the hops very much. Well, you know, Bellhaven, no one's immune to the, the, advent, the, to the craft beer revolution in the United States and especially the hoppy IPAs that came out. So Bellhaven knew this and they decided they were gonna make their own version of an American IPA. And they went out essentially and got Cascade hops. Uh, and they brewed what I think is just an absolutely delightful IPA because it's a really nice balance between sort of a multi-profile that they're sort of classic for um, with this uh, sort of bright Cascade hops notes, which in Cascades might be sort of the uber, the uber classic of the original right. uh, um, craft beer. So it's what you notice in Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and it's what you notice in a lot of the old IPAs. Um, and so I, I think it's a wonderfully, uh, a wonderfully balanced and sort of British version of an American IPA, and it's definitely worth worth checking out. So, and it satisfies the IPA, the American palate. It's it 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 it's familiar to us. Yeah, yeah, it's hoppy and it's got a familiar hop flavor, but it's also got this really nice uh, malt base that I think is a little atypical. Well, uh, I don't think it's a little atypical. It's atypical of your typical American IPA. So, um, so go out and look for uh, Bellhaven's Twisted Thistle IPA, and it it tends to survive pretty well in their clear bottles. Um, but uh, just be aware, you might want to look at how dusty that bottle, <laughs> bottle right. is when you see it on the shelf. Um, you're looking for something uh, nice and fresh if possible. That's exactly right. Okay, so uh, that will therefore end our podcast. Thanks for listening uh, to yet another of the Beer Vana podcast. Um, remember, stay in touch. Uh, mailbag is always open, waiting for your contributions. You can uh, uh, send your feedback, send your questions, um, or just uh, comments at um, or to the underscore beer axe at yahoo.com. That's the inbox for um, Jeff and the blog. Uh, you can also find us at the um, uh, Beervana blog Facebook page. And Jeff, of course, blogs at, uh, at Beervana and at All About Beer. And uh, you blog at uh, Beeronomics and can be found teaching economics at Oregon State University, not Portland State University. Oregon State University. Uh, where you can take a class which will explain the economics of beer. That's if you're right, willing Management to go Economics to... coming this spring. <laughs> uh, all kinds of things that are appropriate to the beer, beer industry will be explained there. All, all mysteries will be solved. In lovely Corvallis, a great place to be in the spring. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay, so uh, as we go out, I'm going to say... Uh, cheers to you. What, well, I guess go over this Bellhaven Scottish Ale. All right. Well, I drank all the, uh, <laughs> the St. James. So let's, let's go with the ballast point for me. Uh, all right. So uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers to you, Patrick. Sauge. Until next week. Next week. That's true.